0: I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. And we're going to read verses 1 through 8 together this morning. The Bible says, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do now since my master is taking away my job from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he called each one of his master's debtors and began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? Now, pause here, okay? In your different translations, the calculations are different, but the percentages of discount are the same, okay? So you're going to find that the way that people are doing this in 50-gallon drums or five-gallon drums ends up with a difference in numbers, but the percentages end up being the same, okay? The, just different translations have addressed this in different ways. Basically, here's what it says. He says, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write that you only owe 50. So it's a 50% discount. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And, and the presumption in the account is that there are others that he calls in to this scheme, this provision for the future. Verse 8, his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Now, this is a very interesting text, and there's a couple more verses that we'll add on at the end of this discussion. I want, to, I want to talk about opportunity. I want to talk about wasted potential and the use of our resources and how we often tend to squander in frivolous things or in evil things, the things that God has given to us to do good things. A couple of illustrations. One from kind of the uh, unimportant realm. What's the largest number of dominoes that has ever been set up and toppled? Anybody want to take a guess? Largest number of dominoes that have been set up in in order and then toppled. Shout out a guess. Million six. Wow, you guys are? You got a lot of time on your hands, Phil. <laughs> okay, it's uh, here's what it is. Uh, Guinness Book of World Record: three hundred twenty-one thousand one hundred ninety-seven. Okay, set up and then let go. Now my response to that is: what an incredibly stupid waste of time. I, I, didn't, I was going to sit down and calculate how many seconds to set up each domino. But you've got to give it to the guy for what? Persistence, incredible patience. I mean, there, there are a lot of things you could say about this guy. Or not, right? I'll give you a name from the 2006, 2007 era, Bernie Madoff. Okay, was Bernie Madoff a smart man? He was incredibly smart. He came up with a scheme, a Ponzi scheme, by which he embezzled people literally out of billions of dollars, the largest theft ever created in the world. You've got to give it to someone like that. It irritates, it broke people's lives, it ruined people's future. But you can't say that he was a stupid man. You've got to say, what a clever fool. But you have to give it to him for shrewdness. He's in jail today. The events of 9-11. One of the saddest days that has ever come into American history. But you were forced to acknowledge the incredible creativity, patience, discipline, and effort of the mastermind of that plot. You, you can't look at it without saying, you know what? Unbelievably Precise and effective, and patient, and sacrificial for a devastating cause. You've got to give it to people that work in that kind of a way. It irritates, but you have to say unbelievable skill, and cleverness, and shrewdness, and planning, and patience, and sacrifice. On and on you could go. There are many things positive you could say about that devastating day. And the horrific consequence that it brought to many. And so strong was this mastermind that he was able to bring other people into the plan and get them to sacrifice their lives. Amazing. Well, this morning we look at a parable that kind of feeds off of this kind of a theme. People that use incredible intellect, ability, capacity to do things that are either absolutely inane, meaningless, or devastating, or evil. The parable is a story from everyday life that is meant to teach and clarify heavenly truth in our minds so that we can gain an understanding of eternal truth, eternal principles through a story about events that take place on earth. And what he's going to do is tell a story and contrast it to the eternal. So a temporary, temporal story on earth that is then meant to teach us as Christians how to live in light of the eternal world that God has created. So the parable is a story from everyday life. I want you to look at, first, the characters in this story. There's a rich landowner. You could call him, if you lived a couple hundred years ago, you would call him a land baron, okay? He had a large estate. The, the, The bottom line is something like this. The man owns more than he can personally manage, than he can handle. So what they would do in the ancient world is they would take their estate, much like a wise manager would do today, they would break up their responsibilities and put them under the care of other individuals. In that context, they would call them stewards or managers. They were responsible for a portion of a very wealthy person's possessions. And then in this story, there's a manager. He is, if if you're familiar with estate planning, he's a trustee, okay? He has the full authority of the master to act on his behalf in a certain realm or sphere of his influence with his possessions. It is a fairly prestigious position, an influential job in the community, and he would be respected because of his position. He was a director, he was a manager, and people would would look at that and say, you know what, good job. He's kind of worked his way up in the company, in in the master's estate. He's kind of, he's got himself ahead. He's doing quite well for himself. But the second half of verse 1 says that this manager is accused of wasting or squandering his master's possessions. The key to the story is this. What he is wasting is not his to waste. It's not his possessions. He is a manager of something that is owned by someone else. The property belongs to another individual and to that individual he is directly accountable. Now, we can think about why this man is accused of wasting, okay? We could say that perhaps there is in him some degree of laziness, uh, of mismanaging. He's not accused of being dishonest at this point in the story, right? He just seems to be careless, reckless, uninvolved, distant in some way. But not necessarily dishonest. It's interesting because when it says here that he was wasting his master's money. The same word is used back in Luke chapter 15, verse 13, if you look back there real quickly. The younger son, in the story of the prodigal son, asked for a portion of his father's inheritance. He asked for what's his in the future. And it says that he wasted it on reckless living. Interesting connection. So this manager is acting just like the guy in the parable previous. Okay, he's wasting, he's squandering that which is of great value and could do great good. Verse 2 is where some of the tension in the story arises. It says, he, the master, called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be my manager. There is a date that is terminal for your employee for me. Okay, that's, and there's, What you start to get is there's a sense of accountability and responsibility that a steward or a manager has before his owner. He can't simply waste it doing whatever he wants, setting up dominoes in his life. He's accountable for the management of those resources and must effectively prosecute that task. And here the owner calls him in and says, you're about to be fired. You can no longer. It's kind of one of those, he gets a pink slip that says, we need to talk or an email, or a text, and that's all there is. And in his heart, he knows exactly what's going on. He doesn't need the master to explain to him what's happening. All right, so what does that bring about? That brings about, for this man, a crisis, because I think one writer says crisis is the mother of invention, right? You get into a circumstance where you've been lazy and and mismanaging your life, and all of a sudden, something comes up that utterly captures your attention, and you're like, man, I need to get my act together. I've been squandering my opportunity. And that's the position that this man finds himself in. All of a sudden, the accountability that he has felt distant from has come near to his door, and he's about to lose his job. What does he start to think about immediately? He starts to think from two perspectives. I want you to notice, notice how this, I love the way verse 3 is stated. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? Well, you know, it would have been really nice if you thought of that five years ago. Right. What should I do? I have this responsibility. What should I do now? He squanders the opportunity. He's called to account, goes into panic. What am I going to do? Probably an internal dialogue because he's too embarrassed to express it publicly. Notice what the text says. He he says, what shall I do so that or uh, what shall I do now since my master is taking my job away? And it's interesting, isn't it, the way that's stated? It's like, really? You should be giving your job away and walking out. But he says, no, the master is taking my job away. And here's his fear. I am not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. He has two problems. One's physical. Okay, he's wrestling with the idea of physical labor, which was the norm in the ancient world. He says, I've, I've become flabby. I've developed desk muscles. I'm kind of not really up to the task of physical labor. How am I going to take care of my family? Secondly, I'm ashamed to beg. I have a psychological problem with going out there and standing as a panhandler, begging for people to meet my needs. I'm a person of prestige in my community. So his mind starts racing. What can I do? And he goes into the realm of the devious and the deceitful and the dishonest. So what happens? Carelessness in his life leads to dishonesty in his life. Squandering opportunity leads to covering your butt, if I can say it that way. My wife's not a here, so I think I'm okay. All right, you, all of a sudden, you've got yourself in a spot, wasted, and now you've got to make up for lost time. So listen to what he does. So the crisis now bursts a complicated life, but that complicated life puts him back in a pressure zone where he's got to think. And as he starts to think, he comes up with a clever plan or scheme. In verse 5, this is what he's going to do. He called each of his masters debtors. And, and we went through this already, so what does he do? He basically takes the notes, promissory notes that people owe to his boss, and he starts slashing them. One guy comes in and says, hey, you owe, and I'll just use fictitious numbers. You owe him 1,000, make it 500. And what, what's the what's the person with the promissory note thinking? Whoa, awesome. Man, you the man. All right, somebody else comes in, he gives us a 20% break there. Uh, You know, if I was him, I would have been like, hey, what gives? You gave that guy 50 off, what about about me, right? But they're all given some degree of discount in which the manager is using his boss's resources to do something for himself. And so he begins to put this plan into practice. You might call it a flash of genius, Christ is being the mother of... Of invention. And so, what is he doing? He's going to, I will use my current status to provide for my future. He conducts a yard sale, a clearance sale with his boss's resources. He is incredibly generous and creative with the material of others. He did them a significant favor. It looked like an act of love, but what was it? He was really buying their future for his own benefit. Okay, he was ingratiating them to himself. He was putting them in a position where they would be indebted to or obligated to him. Why? Because he's too embarrassed to admit that he's broke. So he puts people in a position where they're compromised. The boss is in a position that's embarrassing because he can't go back and reverse the work of his steward because that would achieve him. And so all of a sudden, there is this unbelievable situation where this man is thinking, I'm going to do this with my master's stuff before I lose my job in the process of this transition where I'm being called to account. I'm going to give the books over, and they're not going to look as bad as they really are. But in the end, what has happened? Those people that I gave a significant discount to will look favorably upon me. And notice what he says, because he's got this worked out. He says, I know what I shall do, verse 4, so that when I am removed from my management, people will welcome me into their homes. They will bring me into a place of shelter and care and provision. I'm going to buy my future by using my master's stuff. An utterly dishonest and wicked scheme. What is it? What What is what he is doing? What is it called on the street, on Main Street? What would you call it? Any words come to mind? Yeah, i call it extortion. Call it embezzlement. It's theft. It's blackmail. It's, it's got everything written all over it. If you work for the federal government, you can do all these things. Okay? But if you live in the normal world, you can't do this stuff. Okay? so So what happens? He is... He's called to account. Tension has risen. Verse 8. His master praised and commended the unrighteous manager. Because he had acted shrewdly. Now Jesus is telling this story with a point. And the, the pinch in the story is. Did he just say what I think I heard him say? This story about earth that's meant to teach us something about heaven. Did he just. Say what I think he said? Did he just say that the master in this story praised the unrighteous servant for his dishonesty? Is that what just happened? Now notice what it says, because you've got to read it carefully. He praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly, not because he had acted dishonestly. So, what is what is the master saying? He's saying something like, You rascal. I let you in your position for two more days and you abused the position. And what is the master saying? You are an unbelievably clever and shrewd man and wicked. He calls him to account in that kind of a way. But the purpose of the story is not about the issue of dishonesty. The purpose of the story is. What are we doing? What are you doing? What am I doing with the opportunities that God brings into our life to enhance and advance the work of the kingdom of God? All of our lives represent opportunity. All of our resources represent opportunity to make a difference for eternity. We have a choice every day, don't we? We can take the opportunities and resources that are given and squander them, waste them on personal pleasure. Or we can say, God, I want to invest my life in things that will matter, not today, but in things that will matter a thousand years from now, 500 years from now, three years from now. I want to take the opportunity that you have given to me and seize the day for your glory. The point of the story. Jesus draws the conclusion in verse nine. He says, and I say to you. So now he tells the story. The master praises this wicked slave for his incredible cleverness and shrewdness. And then Jesus now brings the, this story home to you and I. He says, and I say to you. And, and by the way, if, you, if you're trying to figure out who he's talking to, go back to the beginning of chapter 16, verse 1. It says, now he was also saying to the disciples. Chapter 15 to the Pharisees. Luke 16, and I believe it's verse 16, he's talking again to the Pharisees. Here he's talking to his followers. Why? Because we also wrestle, don't we? We also wrestle with living in a temporal world where there is immediate pleasure available to us and we are tempted to waste our opportunities. We are tempted to be unfaithful to the master who has redeemed us by his shed blood. And so the point of the story in verse 9 is, I say to you, Make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth. And the idea of worldly wealth is it is, by definition, temporary. Okay, it is temporary. When you die, you won't take anything with you. It is worldly wealth. And when you're out of here, it stays behind. Okay, very important to understand that. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth. Because that's what this guy did with his position, right? He made friends. He obligated people. He indebted them to himself so that later they would cover his backside. Here it's different because Jesus is going to take the principle now and make it eternal in terms of its impact. Make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because in that statement, Jesus transforms the nature of our temporal possessions. He utterly transforms them. He takes them from being temporal and earthbound to being eternal if they are used properly. Meaning, the, 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 the moments we have, the opportunities we have, the material possessions we have can make a significant impact forever. The opportunities that God gives me, I can waste the resources that God gives me, or I can pour them into things that will matter in the future. That's the choice that all of us wrestle with. And what Jesus ultimately is saying is, He's saying the sons of this age, verse 8, are more shrewd, more thoughtful, more intentional in their relation to their own kind than are the sons of light. That's a strong accusation, isn't it? Jesus is saying, There's a strange thing I observe. People in the world are much like this shrewd manager. When they're in a crisis, they start to think of a way out. Fascinating that often Christians, given abundant blessings by God, get caught up in being complacent and thoughtless about the amazing opportunities that are put before us by God. And what is Jesus saying? It shouldn't be that way. We have the opportunity as believers to make a difference for eternity, not for now not for things that'll be left behind, not for dominoes that collide against one another for a few minutes and fall and it's over. And you say, okay, you got the record. What? I mean, seriously. And there's a sense in which it's like this guy would would squander his reputation to get things that when he dies won't matter. It won't register. It won't go with him. It won't be there in the future to give him status. But he pours his life out for it. And God puts you and I in a situation in this world where we interact with people who need to know the Savior. He gives us possessions to make a difference, not to make our life better. And we, we tend to fall into this trap of thinking that the more I have, the better my life can be. And we tend to live for that. And that well, I think what Jesus is saying is something like this that's sad. Why? Because if all of my effort... To pour myself into the realm of the temporal is only temporal. It has no benefit for those outside of the kingdom of God. There's nothing about it that attracts them to become friends of God. It's very likely that we're wasting our opportunity. Our opportunity with the possessions that God has given us. And, And let's be honest. This text is directly focused in the material realm. In terms of how it can make a difference forever. And here's what I know. I know that all the possessions I have today. One day we'll be left behind. Now, the book of Psalms, I think it's chapter or Psalm 46, I think it says, Surely your wings, your, your wealth will sprout wings and do what? Fly away. That's why the psalmist says, in Psalm 95, it says, Oh God, so teach us to number our days. That we may gain a heart of wisdom. God, show us what matters. And don't let us waste. Our opportunities on selfish pleasure as the main driver of our life and I'm not saying it's wrong to enjoy things okay but if the driving force of your desire for more is personal stability one day God will shake your world one day this world will shake economically it won't matter it will not matter What matters is eternity. And what this text is driving at very strongly is this idea of making friends with people through the resources you have so that they will enjoy eternity with God. And when you get home, some of them who preceded you, and this is the picture, they will welcome you. But Folks, I'm going to tell you something. What a shame for the person who knows the gospel of Christ, who has been transformed by it, who never shares it, lives a self-indulgent life, wasted, and then goes to heaven. It's better than going to hell. But I guarantee you that when we get there, this will be the thought on on our minds. I should have done more. I should have focused myself on what matters. Folks, look. It is very easy for us to be captivated by things that are ultimately meaningless. Okay, and I want to pick. Okay, we live in a country that pours so much energy and effort into professional sports. Okay, the ladies said amen, none of the men. <laughs> there are people with a ton of Potential who use it for the glory of God. And there are professional athletes that do that. But there are many people who pour so much of their life and energy into passion. Exhibit a passion towards that that's never exhibited towards the kingdom of God. That's the problem. That's the disconnect. When we love those temporal things, when we love material things, I'm a woodworker. I love working with wood. Okay, I enjoy, I love that kind of stuff. I have to wrestle with the tension that that stuff doesn't captivate me. And drown out the more important things. This is the the battle that we live with. And this is the Jesus he's he's kind of bemoaning. It's sad that the sons of darkness are more diligent about their sin than the sons of light are about eternal things. And that's where we wrestle. And you have to do business with God. You have to examine your heart and say, God, show me. I can't, I can't give you the specifics in your life. I can only push you with the principle that says, be careful that you're not squandering the God-given opportunities that are before you. Sit down like the mastermind of 9-11 did. Sit down and spend time to think out 15 years how you're going to get 22 people to sacrifice their life just to cause havoc. And ask yourself to damn people. That's what they wanted to do. And what, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, how much of your life are you pouring into that which has eternal consequence? How much of your daily life? Okay, and I don't mean you have to quit work to do it. I mean, go to work to do it. I don't mean quit school, right, Jim Margaret Diesel? We're not, as a principal, we're not promoting the people quit school, right? But go to school as a Christian, young person. And God will transform your life from being about maintenance and getting grades to being about a mission where you get grades so that you can influence others, where you excel and exceed at everything you do so that you can draw attention to someone who can draw attention to God. Does that make sense? So that we, we, we start to do what we do for the glory of God. And I am all about precision and all about, you know, really, really going after things Hard. Put your head down and go. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart. But do it for the glory of God. Because if you don't, you will be like this guy who takes the possessions and opportunities that God in his wisdom gave you to use for his glory. And you will squander them. And when they're squandered, you end up in a crisis where now you have to use people around you to cover yourself. And that's sad. And so Jesus is challenging us here to be very thoughtful about the resources that we have so that we become people who are clever, shrewd, and honest about the use of the resources and opportunities that God has given us. And I challenge you, I challenge you to think about your own life. I challenge you to think about tomorrow. I challenge you to think about yesterday. How did you use the day? How are things going at work for you? Is it about God? Or is it about the next promotion? Because if it's about the next promotion, you will compromise your principles to get what you want. And when you get what you want, you will have a crisis. The principles that emerge out of this text, as Jesus applies this story, are very simple. Your money and the possessions you have have a shelf life. It has a shelf life. So, Folks, let me tell you this. If you find yourself looking at your retirement account on a regular basis to see how your future is going to be, I challenge you to realize it has a shelf life. It is only effective for a time. And if all I do is hoard and store and never impact the kingdom of God, never pour my possessions and resources into affecting people's lives for eternity, I will have wasted my life. It has a shelf life. That's why Jesus here calls it worldly wealth. And in verse 9, here's what he says. I say to you, this is Jesus. Now, this is imperative, okay? He's not saying, hey, it'd be a good idea if Christians went out and made friends. This isn't the imperative. I say to you, Jesus says to his disciples, make friends. Which tells me what? The Christian life is intensely relational. It's about my life applied to another person's life, affecting another person's life, invading another person's life for the benefit of eternity and their eternal good and the glory of God. Make friends for yourself. How? By means of worldly wealth. And the idea of worldly wealth simply means it is temporary. It has effect now. Use it. Because you save it and leave it behind. It is uninvested. Do this so that when it fails, it's interesting, isn't it? Because our country has gone through times when money has failed. Great Depression, 2006 through 2009. Times when it's failed and then things start to come back up and we start thinking it's all about money. When it fails, what is Jesus saying? One day, its capacity to influence your life and to give you joy, one day, that capacity will evaporate. What I mean is this. Your ability to protect it or your ability to enjoy it will one day be taken away. Therefore, and what is he? He's resetting. He's resetting so that when it fails, what? Notice what it says. They, these people that were influenced by the gospel, will receive you into eternal dwellings. Isn't that cool? That means you and I can influence the future of people's lives by the proper use of our time and resources today. That is an unbelievable and powerful promise. And that is a purpose that will utterly transform your life. Be careful because there is a point when the power and purpose and promise of resources will come to an end. A point when we leave it all behind. When the rich man dies and his wealth does not follow him to the grave. And I speak this morning not only to those that are enjoying more than they need. But to all of us because I think that's the direction this text goes. Secondly, Jesus urges us to use God-given resources to make an eternal difference. That is, there will be people there who welcome us. And generosity is how we avoid wasting our resources and our opportunities. That becomes the point of the text. I submit this thought to you. Possession present a powerful opportunity to make an eternal difference in people's lives. Do you think about it that way? All right, And there's the challenge, isn't it? Temporal possessions present an opportunity to make an eternal difference in people's lives. And my heart says, God, help me. Help me. To see my resources as having eternal consequence, not if they're wasted, but if they're invested in the purposes that you've given to me to do. Verses 10 to 12 then help to apply this truth. Jesus says, he he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is righteous in a very little thing is righteous also in much. Sometimes people say, I have very limited resources, therefore I can't make a difference. Jesus would beg to differ. Folks, think of this. When Jesus wanted to point out generous giving, he did not find a wealthy man. He found a poor widow. And he made a spectacle of her. He didn't embarrass her, but he made a point out of her life. She, put in, she did what she could. And Jesus says, that's the kind of life I'm looking for. That's the kind of person that can impact the future for others. Live that kind of life. Each one of us are managers of God's resources. Realizing that we all have different amounts, but we all have the same opportunity to be faithful before God. And I would argue that this simple principle of managing God's resources is, and Al, I, I think you would agree with me, having been overseas a lot, it's harder to live this kind of life in America. Because we have it so good. And we can have it so much better. That's, and I, th- I think most of us here this morning would probably say, you know what? I have it pretty good. I have it pretty good. But I would like it better. Right? Do you ever feel that way? Oh, you're you're all holier than me. <laughs> okay. No, the truth is, we look around, we see what other people. Somebody drives up in a nicer car, and I'm like, all right. Somebody has a nicer house, and we're like, oh man. Or they get a promotion. I'm thinking, right? I mean, we 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 are. It's just part of living in a culture of opportunity. in in, in China and in India, those kind of opportunities are much less present so that's not where their challenge lies it's where our challenge lies in america in a country of affluence admittedly one of the most wealthy countries in the world we have a battle to face we have a tendency to squander and waste by using for ourselves and you may not be throwing it down the drain but you may just be using it for yourself without thought about eternal consequence and that's where this tension and i can't i can't give you dollar amounts i can only Push the principle your direction and say that every one of us has given, been given by God a, a, an amount of resources that we are responsible to manage for him. And one day we will give an account of ourselves. That's kind of the bite of this text. Okay, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of ourselves in relationship to our use of the resources and blessings that God has given. And I would give you this challenge. Use what you have today. Don't squander it, invest it, and stop making excuses. Because we all think, you know what, if I had a little more, then I would do this, or I would do that. You know what Jesus would say? Jesus would say what you do with a little is exactly what you would do when you have a lot. And I want you to think about it personally. Because many of us, maybe not in the last five years, but over the years, have experienced an increase in our pay grade. And some of us not, actually. Well, some of us have, probably a lot of us have. Life has gotten better in some ways over the last 15 years. I want you to think back 15 years and ask yourself a question. When the pastor preached on tithing, on giving, supporting missions, more of your time given to serving others, here's what you thought to yourself. You thought to yourself, you know what? When I get the next pay raise, I'll become an obedient Christian in regards to my resources. That's when I'll do it. Did you? When I get more time, I will spend more time helping. When my kids are raised, okay? Well now I got a little ones, so I, I can't really get involved in church life and influencing the lives of others. But when the kids are out of the house, I'll have more time. Do you? The answer is yes. But how are you using it? Hey, your responsibilities decreased, but your desire for more increased. Or a desire for more pleasure increase. Because you know what? Uh, come on, let's be honest. Life is passing me by. I've got to get enough joy out of life. I had this trip I've always wanted to do. i get this and this and this, right? It, it bombards our brains because we live in a culture of opportunity. And it steals from eternity. It deceitfully steals because we get careless, we become complacent, we lose focus, and we're like the careless steward who one day will stand before God. And I challenge you, I encourage you. Those promises you made to God, stand up and do them. Those opportunities that God has put before you to help others, to to help the church of God in this community, do it. Do it. Do with a little what you will do with a lot. What you do with a little is exactly what you will do with a lot. You see, the problem isn't your kids taking up so much of your time, it's not, it's your focus. It's your focus. So let me make this a little personal because my wife isn't in here. When I first came here, we had one daughter, Rebecca. While we were coming back and forth in the 18, 18, 1989, this young lady up front here was born, Erica. The only one that's around anymore. And then... Uh, We left our house Sunday mornings for a year and a half from Harleysville to come here. And I could not have done this on my own because a woman thought that it mattered. And I think it can say a a woman that none of you would accuse of being careless or thoughtless about her kids. Is that fair? Who never allowed her kids to be an excuse for being AWOL from ministry okay that's my wife's story it's why you guys love her that's why only one person has ever given me a criticism of my wife most pastor's wives would die to get out of ministry my wife loves ministry has never complained for the record I have okay but my wife's busyness, homeschooling her kids, and all those things never kept her from serving God. And I think I can say that as an example of this. My wife is a person who has made the, and there are many within our church family that have done that. I, I say it to challenge you. If you're always waiting till we just got married, we just had kids, we just, we just, we just, you will never Serve God. You won't. You will never get involved in the lives of others. You will never experience the blessing of enjoying friends who would die and will greet you in heaven. And I said, just what a shame. The greatest joy in life is to go through life giving yourself all to the master. Not divided. Because what Jesus will say later in this text, and I'll just say this is the close. What Jesus will say is you can't serve God and can't. I thank God I have a wife who serves God and I am secondary to her. I can tell you that I'm secondary to God before my wife. She gives me high priority and blessing, but I'm second to God in my wife's life. You say, how do you know? Because I watch how she lives, not by what she says, what people say doesn't matter. What they do is what matters. What you do with your time, what you do with your possessions. This church was birthed on the backs of people who had kids who were that same age as us who poured themselves in so that God would be glorified. And that's the thing that will take this church to the next level for the glory of God that will get us into a building where we can make a greater difference for the glory of God. But it's going to take people who understand that we can keep our life in balance. All right, they, yes, there are a number of responsibilities that we all have. We don't have to sacrifice our families for the kingdom. No. No. Use your God-given opportunity with your family to invest in the kingdom of God. And when you come to the end of your life, it will not be with regret that you stand ready to enter into his presence, having to discount bills. But you will be ushered into his presence with great joy. Because you thought the kingdom of God trumped everything else. And that your family and your resources and your relationships and your job and your school experience, all was about God. It was never a segmented life where I go to church and I do the God thing and then I go to school and do the school thing. No, I do the God thing wherever I go. Here's what Jesus says. You can't serve God and mammon. can't. Can't. Not a statement of difficulty, like trying to ride two horses at one time. It's a statement of impossibility. You can't do it. And so Jesus, here's the challenge. This shrewd manager, he was dishonest. But at least he was committed. At least you can give him that. He poured his heart into what he did. He's to be respected for that at some level. How much more, Jesus says. Those that live in the realm where they know the eternal, how much more for us? Jesus lived this life, and at the end, he had an opportunity an opportunity to die on the cross to pay the price for your sin and to redeem you from your sin forever that was his opportunity he fell on his face in the garden of Gethsemane and pled with his father father if it is possible let this cup pass let it pass I don't want to do this in his human side and then this commitment nevertheless not my will but thine be done 2nd Corinthians 8 9 captures this thought it says Consider him, the son of God, who though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, said that we through his poverty and self-sacrifice might become rich. Folks, what's the richness? The richness is I have a place with him forever because his shed blood has redeemed me from my sin, has forgiven me of all of my rebellion and has made me a son of God because he who was rich emptied himself and he says what you saw me do do that so that we through his poverty his self-abasement his submission to the father's will so that we might become rich and have the hope of heaven and life with him forever folks who is it that god wants you to befriend who does he want you to pour your life into we have the privilege of having al horton here this morning this lovely young man over here on the third row he is one of my heroes okay Al Horton, retired from the state police. He looks like a state police, doesn't he? <laughs> retired as a sergeant from the state police 25 years ago at the age of 60. Do the cat That's not true. But I know this. I know Al has a good pension. I know that. I don't know what Al's pension is. I know he has a good pension because he retired as a state trooper. Al had a plan. He and his wife are going to move to Arizona and enjoy the good life. And none of us would fault him. What would we say? You know what, Al? Good job. You earned it. You earned it, pal. You go enjoy yourself. And God got a hold of Al's heart, driving a truck. To listen to a sermon about not wasting his life. God told him he wanted to go to China, and start to share the gospel. Al had a choice to make. I got to go and tell my wife, "We're not going to Arizona, honey. We're going to China." And his wife jumped on board. I'm a little bit jealous, Al. Of your life. And I think most of us see the joy you have in the ministry that God has given to you and your wife. I know the sacrifice you guys have made. And you have won my respect. And what I hope we will do as a church is that we will model the behavior that you have lifted up before us. That we will be shrewd Wise, intentional servants of God who are willing to pay any price to do God's will in our lives. May God raise up a lot of Al and Pegs within the chapel and Bruce and Doug Finkbinder's and Sherry Finkbinder's and John Bakers and Betty Freezers and just raise up people who will start to say it's not about the temporal, it's not about. Money that perishes. I hope that statement haunts you. When it fails, what I'm living for, when it fails, when it can no longer satisfy, when it can no longer provide promise, when it can no longer provide for my future, when it fails, I will be received into an eternal dwelling that cannot fade away. That's why the Apostle Paul says, So we fix our eyes. Not on things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are what? Temporal, vanishing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. May God capture the hearts of our young people, moms and dads today, with a vision for investing their lives in what will matter when trouble strikes in your life, when a crisis comes. And you don't have to panic and make adjustments. You can just keep pressing on. For the glory of God. Because you're living the life. That he called you to live. May God help us. Father. As we prepare. To close this morning.